Well, good evening. I know you can do better than that. You're all Seventh-day Adventists. Good evening. evening. Just had a rousing song service, and I appreciate those that uh, let out in that. I always enjoy singing Adventist hymns, and I feel like, well, they're not all Adventist hymns, but I always feel like we don't sing enough in our church services. Um, So it's nice to have a good song service. Um, I am actually just want to make a quick little addition to uh, what has already been said. Carp Lake, the reason why you probably hadn't heard of Carp Lake is because there's only 350 people in Carp Lake. (laughs) It's the smallest of my three churches. Uh, We have about eight members there on a good Sabbath. But they're faithful members, uh, part of the backbone of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, And then I also pastor a church in in, uh, Sheboygan, which is towards the eastern side of the tip, and Petoskey, which is on the western side of the tip. And if you ever want to go to a place for a tourist vacation, go to Petoskey, Michigan, and make your way up to Mackinac Island, right? Mackinac Island's a beautiful place. Uh, It's a wonderful place to go to. It's one of the hidden gems of Michigan that many people don't know about. In fact, when we got the call to come to Michigan... um, I kind of had this, this, this view of Michigan that maybe you have, that Michigan is Detroit, and all of the state is Detroit. And so we rolled into Petoskey, and we thought, wow, this is, this is amazing. So um, if you do want to go someplace in Michigan, definitely go to the tip of, the, of uh, the, the state. It's a beautiful place. And it really looks like this right now. This is one of the pictures I took when I, uh, last season. But the colors are absolutely splendid up there this time of the year. It's a good time to come up after all the tourists have moved on. Um, my family was not able to make it tonight, but I did want you to meet them. Uh, I have two children. That's why my wife is not here. Uh, they had to sit in the car for seven and a half hours today, and those of you that are parents understand that. Um, so they're at home getting a little rest, but they will be with us tomorrow. This is what the northern part of Michigan looks like about 80% of the year. Uh, we, we get lots of snow up there, um, but we enjoy the snow and the beauty and the symbolism that it represents spiritually. So it's a privilege to be with you here uh, this evening and this weekend. Um, The messages that I have chosen to share with you um, over the weekend, I have to be honest with you, these messages have probably touched my life the most in all of my time of preaching and ministry. And as I look back on on my spiritual walk with the Lord, I find every revival in my life has always started with the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. And I'm kind of having this renewed experience as, we're, as I'm going through this series with my church members right now. So let me just kind of tell you ahead of time, I'm actually in the middle of putting this series together, so you're not going to get the whole thing. It's going to end up being about eight parts. I'm going to share with you three and a half of those uh, in our time together here and challenge you to continue that study because it's a, it's a wonderful study. It will draw you closer to Jesus, and it will help you meet the crisis that is just before us. So as was mentioned, Gethsemane is a beautiful chapter in the book Desire of Ages, and that's where we're going to be starting our study together this evening. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we start with a word of prayer. Merciful Father in heaven, we thank you for the awesome example that you give to us in your precious Son, And Father, as we tarry for just a few moments this evening and we watch him in the garden, Lord, I pray that his experience, that we would covet that experience, that we would covet it enough to make it a reality in our lives. Father, may your spirit be here, I pray. May you chase away any distractions and may you speak to our hearts exactly the message that you want us to take home with us tonight. I thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Review and Herald, August 17th, 1897, 117 years ago. The servant of the Lord says this, We are nearing the great crisis of this earth's history. How many of you believe that? 
117 years ago, this was written, that we're nearing the great crisis of this earth's history. I looked up the word crisis, and it's a broad definition, but to narrow it down, the part that I think is applicable for us here this evening is, a crisis is a time when a difficult or important decision must be made. Are we living in that time right now, yes or no? We're living in a time where important and difficult decisions must be made. And and we just can't make these important and difficult decisions alone. As we look at the great rescue plan called the plan of salvation that God has so beautifully described to us in his word, we find there in this plan of redemption two crises that are going to happen and have happened. The first crisis happened at the closing scenes of the life of Christ, which we're going to be focusing on in our study here uh, over the next couple of presentations. We look at that time when our salvation and redemption was finally secured in the last 48 hours of the life of Christ. Tremendous stuff there. Then there is the final crisis that will take place at the close of this earth's history. And between these two crises, there are many parallels Parallels that if the, if the astute student of God's word takes the time to dig them up, will find deep treasures in the parallels between, between these two crises. Here's a passage that we're very familiar with from the book Desire of Ages, page 83, one that we've heard many times. It says this, It would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in the contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and what? Let the imagination grasp it how? Scene by scene, she says. So she says we would do well to take a thoughtful moment to contemplate the closing scenes of the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes, and let the imagination grasp it scene by scene, especially the closing ones. And then she goes on and she says this in the final part of the paragraph, which is one that we don't often read. That's usually where we stop. But she concludes that paragraph by saying this, if we would be saved at last. How many of you want to be saved? Amen? Amen. If you would be saved at last, she says, we must learn the lessons of penitence and humiliation where? At the foot of the cross. This is, this is a non-negotiable. She says, we must learn the lessons that are vital to our survival in the final crisis. We must learn the lessons that will be found at the foot of the cross. Now, I invite you to go with me to our theme passage, which goes along beautifully with our theme song. Revelation chapter 14. This is going to launch us into our study. Revelation, the 14th chapter. We're going to take the advice of the servant of the Lord. We're going to spend a few thoughtful hours in the contemplation of the closing scenes of the life of Christ. We're going to take this challenge here in Revelation 14 and verse 4. Speaking about the 144,000. Many characteristics here, but let's just focus on one. The Bible says this, These are they which are not defiled with women... For they are virgins, meaning they are spiritually pure. And this is, this is the one I want to focus on. These are they which do what? They follow the Lamb, where? Whithersoever he goeth. The Bible tells us that the 144,000 are close behind Jesus. They follow him wherever he goes. That's why we sing this song, I will follow thee, my Savior. Wheresoever my lot may be. We want to follow Christ wherever he goes. And, and as we look at the crisis that is just before us, it would do us well to spend a little time looking at how Jesus was successful in his crisis so that we can find the tools necessary so that we can be successful in the crisis that is just before us. If that's clear, let me hear you say amen. One of the most beautiful passages that I have come to love just recently, and you can just jot this down in your notes, is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. We're going to look at it a little bit more tomorrow. But I just want to stick it in here. 1 Peter 2, 21. The Bible says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Now, Peter here's, when you look at the example, I mean, I I was at fault at this for quite some time. When I read this passage, I looked at it in the broad sense that Jesus is our example throughout his life. And that is true. But Peter here is specifically pointing to the suffering of Christ, the closing scenes of the life of Christ, and he says, that's your example. As we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, his, his, his human flesh is recoiling at the thought of taking upon him the sins of the world. Are we willing to follow him there? As he's there praying to his father, your will be done, not my will, but thine be done. Are we willing to follow him there? As the angry mob roughly treats him and drags him to the place of trial and, 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 and says things about him that are not true, are we willing to follow him there? As the false ac- accusations are fired at him and as the final sentence of execution falls upon him from the lips of Pilate, are we willing to follow him there? As he's dragged around in the most inhumane way, treating him as, in a way that they wouldn't treat an animal... Beating him, are we willing to follow him there? And ultimately, as he goes to the cross to die for your sins and for mine, are we willing to follow him there? I will follow thee, my Savior, wheresoe'er my lot may be. Ellen White tells us in Review and Herald, April. 12th of 1898, she says this, we need not wait till we are translated to follow Christ. That's a promise. That means that we can follow Christ before we're translated. Say amen. Amen. So we need not wait till we are translated to follow Christ. God's people may do this where? Here below. There's a continuation of that promise. We shall follow the Lamb of God in the courts above only if we what? Follow him here. Are you following the Lamb whithersoever he goeth? It's one of the peculiar characteristics of the 144,000. Wherever Jesus leads them, that's where they go. Even if it means to trial, even if it means to persecution, even if, even if it means to false accusations, they will follow him wherever he leads them. So, this evening, I ask you the question, what do you have in your spiritual toolbox that will help you meet the crisis at the close? What do you have in your spiritual toolbox that will help you meet the crisis at the close? Well, we're going to look at three tools that we're going to get from the life of Jesus in our study together over the next few presentations. To start this off, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to begin in verse 36. The Last Supper has already happened. Judas has already made his escape for the betrayal. He's on his way to the priests. Jesus and the disciples take their last walk. And here they are, we find them in the garden. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter, and the two sons of Zebedee began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And he went away the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, uh, if this cup may not pass from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Between the hours of nine o'clock and midnight, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane on a Thursday evening. He tells his disciples that his heart is sorrowful even unto death. And he admonishes them twice to watch and pray lest they enter into lest they not enter into temptation. And he tells them, the spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And we see the weakness of the flesh there with the disciples. They just can't keep their sleepy eyes open. And three times Jesus comes to the disciples and and he finds them there sleeping in this great time of trial in his life, as the salvation of man is, is, is in the balances, as he's there pleading with his father for grace and for strength to meet the trial that is just before him, he comes back and he finds them sleeping. Now, this reference was one that really kind of got me when I read it the first time. Signs of the Time, December 2 of 1897. You see the tenderness and the humanity of Jesus here. She says this, At the end of an hour, Jesus, feeling the need for human sympathy, rose from the ground and staggered to the place where he had left the three disciples. He longed to see them. His human nature yearned for human sympathy. He longed to hear from them words that would bring him some relief in his suffering. But he was what? He was disappointed. They did not bring to him the help he craved. Instead, he findeth them sleeping. You see the humanity of Christ here. He's, he's, he's praying and he's asking his father for strength, for his will to be done. And he comes to the disciples, not necessarily to wake them up from their sleep, although he did do that. But we're told he came to the disciples because he was yearning for human sympathy and for compassion. Oh, what a great privilege it would have been to be a disciple of Christ at that time and to be able to encourage and uplift the Savior at the time when he was uh, struggling with the reality of the sins of the world being laid upon him. But they let it slip by unimproved. Deeply disappointed, Jesus turns back and he continues the battle there in the garden alone between him and his father. Now, we're told something here in Testimonies, Volume 2, that I want to bring in at this point, page 205. She says, He came to the disciples, or to his disciples, and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. And then she says this, By these, by these sleeping disciples is represented a what? A sleeping church, when the day of God's visitation is nigh, it is a time of clouds and thick darkness, when to be found asleep is most perilous. So she says, listen, you look at those sleeping disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane, she says, that represents a church in the most perilous time of earth's history that is what? Sleeping, and, and, and it's unfortunate that we have to say this, but many Christians today, and dare I say may, many Seventh-day Adventists, are what we call spiritually sleepwalking. We're at church each week. We sing the happy choruses. We slap each other on the back, and we may even, if we're feeling good, stay for potluck to socialize with other people. But we're sleepwalking. Throughout the week, we neglect our time with the Lord. Throughout the week... 
We don't spend time in the study of God's word. Spend time in our prayer chamber with our loving Father in heaven. Throughout the week, maybe we might just have a little time of prayer or a little time of Bible study. Maybe we get impatient with each other. We, we, we are sleepwalking in the most perilous time of earth's history in a time when our destiny is hanging in the balances. Those sleeping disciples represent me, Jason Sliger, sleepwalking in the most perilous time. Now, if that is the case, she doesn't make this application, but I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility. If the disciples represent a church that is sleepwalking in the perilous time of earth's history, the closing scenes, then Christ would represent those who are what? praying. Christ would represent those who are pleading for the strength of the Father, who are winning battles in the audience chamber with God. And I want to follow that example. How about you? I want to follow that example of Jesus. I don't want to follow the example of the disciples. Tomorrow afternoon, don't miss the 2.30 presentation tomorrow afternoon. Because what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sequel of what we're starting here this evening. Tomorrow afternoon, we're going to look at what was the effect or the result of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. How did it play out in the life of Jesus? How did it play out in the life of the disciples? And there we will see, depending on how you act at this time in earth's history, it will determine how you will act when the crisis comes. That's what we're going to look at tomorrow afternoon. So you don't want to miss that. So if if the disciples represent a church that is sleeping, Christ, on the other hand, would represent the church that's awake. Ellen White tells us in the book Desire of Ages, I don't have this on the screen, but she says, it was in sleeping when Jesus bade him watch and pray that Peter prepared... The way for his great sin. When did he prepare his way? When he was sleeping. And what was his great sin? Denying Christ. And brothers and sisters, it's not going to be any different for you. If you're sleepwalking in your spiritual experience with God, you will deny him just like Peter did. Peter had good intentions. And we're going to see tomorrow in our study that Peter was willing to fight, but he wasn't willing to pray. And some of us are willing to be engaged in things in our church. We're willing to be involved in programs. We're willing to come to Inspire Ohio. We're willing, we're willing to help out with church functions and things of that nature. But when it comes to winning battles in the audience chamber of God, we're sleeping like Peter was. But when the battle comes, swing, we pull our sword out and we end up doing things that we shouldn't do. It was while sleeping that Peter prepared the way for his great sin. God help us that we don't follow that example. So here's one tool that we're going to look at. We're going to look at three, as I mentioned. The first tool that I'm going to kind of massage out for us here this evening, or kind of play out here this evening, is that Jesus prayed while others slept. This is the example we want to find. So this is the first tool that we're going to put in our spiritual toolbox. You probably already have it in there. But if you don't know how to use a tool, a tool really doesn't do much good for you, right? So we've got to learn how to use these tools. And, and, and what I'm learning as I'm growing in my prayer experience with God, prayer is more than just coming to God with our requests and our praises. If I could put it in elementary terms, or in educational terms, that's elementary school in prayer. There's more to prayer than that. And so what I want to do this evening is I want to look at three characteristics of Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. Three characteristics of his Gethsemane prayer. So first off, go with me if you would to verse 39 of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 39, one that's probably the most obvious but is well worth stating here. The Bible says this, And he went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Now, the, the thing that's always struck me as I've read this prayer here, obviously Jesus is praying for God's will to be done, but Jesus did not hesitate in telling the father exactly what he wanted. But what Jesus wanted was not what the Father wanted for him at that time. Have you ever thought about that? 
Jesus was praying a prayer request that wasn't in accordance with his father's will. But he ended that prayer request by saying, not my will, but thine be done. And it's interesting, as you compare the, the prayers of Jesus, there are three of them here. As you, as you compare the prayers of Jesus, what you find is, it starts off with Jesus expressing his desire. But as it gets further into that prayer, it becomes less about what Jesus wants and more about what the Father wants. And, you know, oftentimes when we look at this prayer experience here, we think, okay, you know, three quick prayers, boom, it's done. But there were hours of prayer that was going on here. You just read that in a quote there just a few moments ago, that after an hour he came to the disciples seeking for human sympathy. This was a long process where Jesus was praying and asking for God's will. And the more he prayed, the more his Father's will became his will. And it's because we spend so little time in prayer that we pray such selfish prayers. And we don't get past what we want onto what the Father wants. But we're still stuck on what we want. But as Jesus spent hour after hour after hour there pleading with the Father for strength, his will began to change into the will of his Father. That's what we want in this, in, this, in this final crisis. We want the will of the Father. And that battle is won not by suppressing our own conscience and our own will, but that battle is won in the audience chamber with God. It's won in our prayer chamber with the Lord each morning. Go on, let's look at verse 42. It says this, And he went again a second time, and he prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. So again, it's becoming less about what he wants, more about what the Father wants. Verse 44, And he left them, and he went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the what? Same thing. Just, just, just repeating himself in this prayer for the Father's will to be done. So as we look at the, the Garden of Gethsemane, the first characteristic that we find in Jesus' Gethsemane prayer, or what I like to call his crisis prayer, the overarching theme of this crisis prayer is not my will but thine be done. Now, now we're all familiar with this. But what we're not familiar with is pushing through far enough in our prayer life until we get to the point when the Father's will re in reality becomes our will. And that doesn't just happen overnight. It doesn't just happen with a five or ten minute prayer as we're shooting off out the door. This happens as we develop our prayer skill in the audience chamber with the Lord. So that's the first characteristic that we find as we look at this, this crisis prayer of Christ, the Garden of Gethsemane prayer. It was a prayer of thy will be done. Praying until my desires are changed into the Father's desires. Now let's look at the second characteristic of Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. The second characteristic we find this. As we've already seen, Jesus did not want to take upon him the sins of the world. He recoiled at the idea of having all the sins of the world placed upon him. He never sinned in his life and he never knew what it was like to be separated from his father. He didn't know that experience, but he knew enough about it that he didn't want to experience it. So the idea of sin being placed upon him and it resulting in separation from his father he did not want that. But as much as he didn't want that, he still was willing to do what the Father's will was. But as I read the story, it's interesting to me that I find nowhere in this story where anybody comes alongside Jesus, puts their arm around him, says, Jesus... You can do this. There's nobody that comes up to Jesus and puts their arm around him and says, Jesus, I'm praying for you at this time. Would that have meant a lot to him? Sure it would. We just read that. That's what he was looking for from his disciples. There was nobody that came along and encouraged him and said, listen, you've got a dark hour that's coming just before you. You need to spend time with the Lord in prayer. There's nobody like that. Jesus took it upon himself to invite himself into the audience chamber of God, irrespective of what other people around him were doing. You so sometimes we get so discouraged, you know, brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they're not doing this, they're not doing that. Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they say this, they say that. Brother, sister so-and-so, you know, they do this, they do that, they live their life this way, they do this thing. And we get so discouraged by what's going on around us, Jesus could have easily gotten discouraged if he looked at the disciples too long. Yes. 
He could have easily been discouraged and said, enough is enough. I'm going back home. Even my disciples don't care about me at this time, let alone the rest of the world. He could have done that. But he kept his eyes on the Father, and the Father gave him the strength, and he continued to persevere in that prayer life individually. Didn't wait for other people to encourage him, but he did it on his own. And I fear, in the Adventist church, as I look at my three churches, and as I look at other churches that I've worked with, Adventist church at large, I fear that we don't really have a clear conception of how necessary prayer is in our spiritual experience. Of course, we understand it theoretically. You know, yes, we need to be praying. But experientially, it's a different story. And too often, we depend upon other people's encouragement to keep us going in our spiritual journey. Right? We're waiting for somebody to come along and say, hey, I'm praying for you. Of course, that's encouraging, and we we appreciate that. We're waiting for somebody else to come along and say, hey, let's pray together. Or somebody else, the pastor, to come and say, you know what, this is what you need to do. Instead of taking it upon ourselves and fighting that battle individually, as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to what Ellen White says. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 120, uh, 122, she says this, There are persons in the church who are not converted, no surprise to us, and who will not unite in earnest, prevailing prayer. Let's not be one of those. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's not be one of those. We must, there's that word again, enter upon the work how? Individually. We must Pray more and what? This is from the chapter in Selected Messages called A Call for Revival. How ironic. Or maybe it's not ironic. All revival starts in the prayer chamber with the Lord. You want a revival in your local church? Get in your prayer chamber. You want to see a revival in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Get in your prayer chamber. You want to see a revival in your family? Get in your prayer chamber. You want to see that Bible study contact make the decision for Christ? Get in your prayer chamber. You want a Bible study contact? Get in your prayer chamber. You want to help the pastor? Get in your prayer chamber. The prayer chamber is where this battle is fought, brothers and sisters. And it's this tool, as we look at the closing scenes of the life of Christ, it is right here in the Garden of Gethsemane where it all started and where it all finished. When you look at what happened in the life of Jesus as he came out of the garden, it is stupendous how Jesus reacted after his prayer time in the garden. It's just beautiful. And as we look at that story of of how Jesus reacted after the garden, we are seeing there a possibility in our own lives as we come into the hour of crisis that we can respond as Jesus did if we put the time in that Jesus did. She says, we must enter in upon this work individually. I won't take time to read the quote, but it's in 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 251. She makes a very quick little statement there, and she simply says this, if one person would spend time with the Lord in prayer, pleading for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that one person's prayer, praying for the Holy Spirit, would encourage somebody else to do the same thing. Amen? Amen. That's power right there. That's the power that you possess as a lay person. That if you spend that time with the Lord in prayer, it's going to encourage somebody else to do the same thing. And I wonder to myself, what if we had two people in our churches doing that? What if we had three people in our churches doing that? What if we had a whole host of people in our churches pleading for the gift of the Holy Spirit? Maybe we might just see this work come to a close. And that's what I'm looking forward to. What if we had groups that were coming together every Wednesday night and praying and asking for God to work on the hearts of people in their communities. You know, unfortunately, Wednesday night prayer meetings is one of the most skinniest attendances in our churches. Yet we are told it's the pulse of our church. What if we came together on that Wednesday night and spent some time in prayer? That's what we do in our church. We spend less time talking and more time praying because that's the counsel that we have. One of my churches, our elders, we get together every single morning at 6 o'clock and we pray on the phone. Battles have been won in that prayer chamber. Prayer. This is where it is. 
This is where Jesus won the battle. The victory was won at this point as Jesus was praying and prevailing with his father in the garden. The second characteristic that we see uh, in Jesus' Gethsemane prayer or this crisis prayer is that he entered into this work individually. It was an individual prayer. He didn't wait for somebody else to come along and say, hey, come on, you need to do this. He entered into the work alone. And we're told that each one of us must have our own individual experience with God. We're not going to make it because of our husband or our wife or anybody else. We're going to make it from our own relationship with the Lord. Do we know Jesus the way we ought? Let's look at the third and final characteristic. And this one is the one that I like to think about in my study. Go with me, if you would, to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. Luke 22 and verse 44. This is at the closing part of Christ's prayer in the garden. He's just about to be betrayed by Judas and uh, taken into the hands of sinners. And it says this. And being in agony, how was he praying? Have you ever agonized with the Lord in prayer? I hope you have. I trust that you have. He was in agony with the Father. And he was being in agony. He prayed more what? (laughs) So Christ's prayer in the garden, it crescendos. It starts off, you know, in in a kind of a low tone. But as the hours progress, as the time moves on, as he gets closer and closer to the hour of midnight, as the, the, the angry mob can be heard in the distance, it's crescendoing. It's getting more and more intense, more and more earnest as he's praying to the Father. The Bible says he prayed the more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke, being a doctor, obviously took note of this. And I don't pretend to know much about the medical world, but I did a little research here because I wanted to see what is this all about. And what I found, and this is just interesting, that this idea of sweating blood, it's, it's a rare condition, but it does actually happen, apparently. And, 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 and the, 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 the reasons that they give for somebody sweating blood is when somebody is under great emotional and mental stress with acute fear and intense mental contemplation, they may have these symptoms. And what happens is the capillaries, they rupture, and, and, and the blood mixes with the sweat that comes out of their face. It's not pure blood that's coming out, but it's blood mixed with sweat. And so it, it comes out a red color as it protrudes from, or comes out of their body. But it happens when somebody is put under an immense amount of mental stress. This may end up happening to them. And that's what Jesus was going through. This, this, this idea of him sweating great drops of blood, it wasn't just some supernatural phenomenon that was taking place. This tells us how intense and earnest Jesus' prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane. It got him to the point where his physical body was reacting in a way that isn't normal for most human beings. Now, I have, I have found out that people who have this experience of sweating blood. The skin becomes very sensitive as a result of that. And so we find that Jesus' suffering began physically in the garden in his prayer life. Brothers and sisters, that's an intense prayer life. I don't know anything about that. I don't even come close to that. I've never, even, I've never even perspired in my prayer life. Most of us are trying to keep ourselves awake and claiming Bible promises that the Lord would wake us as we're praying. Praise the Lord for claiming Bible promises. 
But we're told this. In early writings, page 269, now again, we're making comparisons between the closing scenes of the life of Christ and the closing scenes of this earth's history. We look at the intensity of Jesus' prayer life. This is what she says, I saw some with strong faith and agonizing cries pleading with God. Their countenance were pale and marked with deep anxiety, expressive of their internal struggle. Firmness and great earnestness was expressed in their countenance. Listen to this. Large drops of perspiration fell from their what? Are we going to have a similar experience to Jesus? We may not have capillaries that rupture in our face or wherever it may be uh, and have blood come out, but she says that there will be an intensity in our prayer life, in the closing scenes of this earth's history, where we will perspire great drops of sweat that will pour down our face as we are winning battles in the chamber with the Lord in prayer. So what we find is this. We find the third characteristic of Jesus' crisis prayer. It was an earnest prayer. It was a prayer of thy will be done. It was a prayer that was individually won or individually prayed. It was a prayer of earnestness as Jesus poured out his heart to the Father in prayer. But listen, friends. The prayer experience that we just looked at there in early writings and the prayer experience that Jesus had isn't something that just happens momentarily. Perhaps the reason why the disciples were, were, were unsuccessful in that hour of crisis is because they weren't willing to enter into Jesus, enter in with Jesus into his prayer time prior to the time of crisis. And I'm not just talking about the, the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that Jesus had a beautiful prayer life prior to that. Oftentimes, I just read a quote this morning in our prayer time with the elders about how Jesus would go off into the mountainsides or off into the woods or off to some secluded place and he would there pray to the Father and as the sun began to raise, arise in the sky, he would begin to sing praises to the Lord. And one of my elders said, wouldn't it have been wonderful to hear him pray or hear him sing? I said, oh man, that would be beautiful to hear him sing as the sun was rising in the sky. They didn't enter into that experience. They hadn't grown in their prayer education. So tonight I ask you, where are you in your prayer education experience? <laughs> are you a ki in kindergarten? Are you in grade school? Are you in high school? Don't answer that prayer yet. Or don't answer that question, rather. Are you in college? Are you working on your master's degree or PhD or whatever, maybe? Where are you in your prayer experience? And I don't want you to answer that question right now. I want you to go home tonight or maybe tomorrow morning and ask the Lord to tell you where you are. Because he'll be, a, a more, accurate, uh, he'll be more accurate in telling you exactly where you are in your prayer experience. But brothers and sisters, we need to grow in our prayer education. The battle was won. There in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to see this tomorrow. We're going to see how it plays out. What happened to the disciples? What happened to Jesus as a result of that time there in the Garden of Gethsemane? So I challenge you again. Where are you in your prayer education? Where are you? I pray by God's grace that when this crisis comes, that we will be working on our master's degrees and PhDs in prayer. That we will be so deep with our Father that that would be the only place that we could even conceivably think about going when that crisis comes. That even though all men may betray us, and Jesus tells us those of our own, our own households will be our worst foes, what are you going to do at that time? Who are you going to lean on? Who are you going to turn to? Jesus turned to his disciples to find encouragement. It wasn't there. He had to be deep with his Father. Where are you in your prayer education? Let me give you four practical things in closing tonight. You like practical things? Yes. In Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they ask him a question. And that question is, Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. That passage right there has so much packed into it. I got six-part presentation on how that question is answered. Lord, teach us how to pray, as John taught his disciples. Four practical things that will help us learn how to pray. Number one, have a place to pray 
have a what? Have a place to pray. Did Jesus have places to pray, yes or no? He had many places where he would go to pray. But before you can have many, you first have to have... (laughs) It's obvious, right? It starts at one. So have a place to pray. Make a place in your home that is your prayer spot. This is where you go each morning. My prayer spot is in my laundry room. Because if I go anywhere else, it'll wake the kids up and destroy the prayer time. That's where it is for me. Every morning, I meet with my father next to my washing machine and dryer. (laughs) Have a place to pray. This is the spot where I meet the Lord every single morning. Jesus had places to pray. Once you have one place, then you can start adding other places. Number two, have a time to pray. Have a what? Have a time to pray. Every morning... I go to this spot at this time and I pray. How many of you think that's a good idea? It's without question, this is what I do. My alarm goes off at 5 o'clock, I get out and I spend some time with the Lord in that secret spot, that audience place where I can enter into that closet of prayer with the Father. So have have a place to pray, have a time to pray. Third thing, learn to pray out loud. Learn to what? A lot of us like to pray inside of our heads and silently. And it's because some of us have bought into this idea that if I pray my prayers out loud, then the devil will hear what I'm praying and then he will thwart the answer to that prayer. (laughs) How weak can our faith be? The devil trembles when we pray to the Lord. Let him tremble in your audience chamber. Who cares if he hears what you have to say? Your God is more powerful than him. You know, when the disciples came and asked Jesus this question, Lord, teach us how to pray. How could they ask that question if they hadn't heard Jesus pray? Ellen White tells us that that's what happened. They heard him praying, and it was so beautiful, so glorious, so amazing. It was something that they had never heard before. They, had, they were compelled to ask this question. We want that experience. Teach us how to pray. So number three, learn how to pray out loud. Now, you may be in a situation where you're in in an enclosed environment, and and if you pray too loud, somebody else may hear you. But listen, God can hear the whispered prayer. It doesn't have to be loud. You don't have to shout it from the mountaintops. If you can, you know, say it louder, fine. But if you need to whisper it, that's fine too. Because the Lord has a listening ear. And what I found in my experience is I've taken these four pieces of advice and put them into practice in my life. What I have found is it keeps my mind on course when I pray out loud. You know how dumb it sounds when you repeat yourself over and over again? But oftentimes that's what we do when we pray inside of our heads. We, you know, we start a sentence and then our minds drift off and then we start that sentence again and our mind go off again and we start, we start repeating ourselves. But when you pray it out loud, it keeps your mind focused and keeps you on track because you have to think about what's coming out of your mouth. So have a place to pray, have the time to pray, learn to pray out loud, where only God can hear. And number four, if your mind wanders, bring it back. Do any of you have wandering minds? We don't like to admit that. But my mind often times wonders. And I want to tell you, friends, that used to be a huge source of discouragement for me. And that's because the devil was right next to me as I was kneeling down on the ground. And he was whispering in my ear saying, you fool. You can't even keep focus when you're praying to the Father. How can you expect that he's going to listen to your prayers? And he used to discourage me. It discouraged me so much that, 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 that I would just sleep in in the morning. But then I learned this wonderful piece of advice that if my mind wanders, bring it back. It's okay. The Lord is still there and he wants to hear your prayers. He understands your humanity. He understands your brokenness. He understands your confused mind. And he'll be okay if you have to repeat yourself. He'll be okay if you have to bring it back again. And I'll tell the Lord, Father, forgive me. And I'll just get right back into it. And I don't even let the devil discourage me with that anymore. So four things. Have a what? Have a place to pray. Number two? Have a time to pray. Number three? Learn to pray out loud where only God can hear. Number four? If your mind wanders, bring it back. Is that practical? I use those four things every single morning. 
in my prayer life. And I can tell you from a personal experience, as I've applied this over the last couple of years, it has made my prayer life exponentially grow in a way that I never thought was imaginable. Just having that consistency each morning. So I ask you the question tonight. Where are you in your prayer education? Think you have some room to grow? We all do, amen? And I trust that each one of you here tonight have hearts that desire to be deep with the Lord. That's why you're here. And I have faith that every single one of you can have that experience that you desire to be deep with the Lord. Great things are ahead of us, friends. Great things are ahead of us. I want to challenge you tonight when you go home to ask the Lord that question, where am I in my prayer experience? Maybe you can carry that over into your prayer time tomorrow morning and listen to the Father. Let Him talk to you. And it may be a hard message that comes to you, but let Him talk to you. Take that impression that He lays upon your mind and then ask the Father to help teach you and to grow you. Pray the prayer, the request that the disciples prayed in uh, Luke chapter 11. Lord, teach us how to pray. Is that your desire tonight? pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are nowhere near where we need to be, but we know that we can be where you want us to be, because greater is he that is within us than he that is within the world. And so, Father, we cling to you with the hand of faith, asking that you will show us in our bare brokenness of our spiritual life, where are we? Only you know. We've even fooled ourselves at where we are. Show us, Father, exactly where we are. And then, Lord, as we sit there in the stillness, listening for the Father's voice to speak to us, may we tarry long enough to hear that voice. And then may we take the advice that's given to us and become more like your Son as a result. Oh, Father, we want to be victorious as Jesus was. Lord, teach us how to pray. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.